This week on the podcast, NASCAR surprises at Le Mans, Ferrari dethrones Toyota, and the Integra is looking for street cred. The People Have Spoken comes back again, and we break down the Instagram polls you answered this week. And finally, we end with a moment in history, the ocean-to-ocean endurance race of 1909. We move forward six years from what we covered last week. Don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe wherever you're catching this podcast. And follow us on YouTube and Instagram for more content at 91octane. Let's start the show. Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John and let's go straight under the hood. I never thought I would be a Camaro fan, but Chevy's Le Mans entry for Garage 56 this year impressed us all. NASCAR continues to evolve with its latest challenge being the 24 Hours of Le Mans in France, uh, which occurred last week. Now, the program Garage 56 was first introduced in 2012 to give developmental and innovative machinery entries to the famous Le Mans. So people, companies want to experiment, or they have prototypes they want to try that doesn't really fall into any classes that exist. Uh, Currently, they would take up the Garage 56 spot, and this has included... Uh, the, a Nissan Delta Wing uh, and an, a modified LMP2 car as well that was raced by a quadruple amputee, Frederick Sausset, which is wild. I had to look up how that worked, but yeah, I mean, there's. I, I would I would suggest looking it up. I think they ran in 2016, but it's it's wild to think you know you can still drive even if you're a quadruple amputee, which is pretty awesome. So um, Garage 56 has had some interesting programs in the past, but this year NASCAR teamed up with Chevy and Hendrick Motorsport along with IMSA and Goodyear as well to walk into the 24 Hours of Le Mans. And uh, this latest entry um, was done in association with Hendrick Motorsports, which is known as the most successful team in history of the NASCAR Cup Series. They have a total of 296 race wins, 14 drivers' championships, so it's only fitting that they lead the charge in in terms of introducing um, Cup cars to the world at Le Mans, which is awesome. But they did have to perform well, so they made sure to look for drivers that would do so. And the drivers for the event where Mike Rockenfeller, which is a DTM champion that won uh, the race overall for Audi back in 2010, and Jensen Button, who's a 2009 F1 champion, and then Jimmy Johnson as well, who's a legend in NASCAR and recently has just been doing whatever the hell he wants uh, in terms of like indie racing and now Le Mans. He gets to drive Le Mans, which is awesome. Um, So they've got the driver set up in terms of the car. There wasn't really a lot shared in terms of goals or what they wanted to achieve, but I think in general they exceeded a lot of expectations. The specs for the car was a Chevy Camaro ZL1 uh, coming in at 2,960 pounds. Uh, Really some of the major differences were the underwing, which had a full carbon under tray with Le Mans spec splitters, engine panel, and a rear diffuser. Uh, It had a five-speed paddle shift sequential transmission. Uh, on the suspension was a double wishbone billet aluminum control arms with adjustable coilover shock absorbers. 
And then the wheels, they were 18-inch BBSs on, wrapped in Goodyear Racing Eagles that were 365 wide. Um, that was a lot of tire. Uh, I think it's more tire than usual, really, because they were looking for a little more stickiness and, and a little more mid-corner speed, which is what they wanted to tune for at Le Mans. Uh, the car was a naturally aspirated V8 at 5.8 liters, so it has a lot of power. Early on, there were some rumblings by the rivals in the race that the car had an unfair advantage, which in my mind does not really compute. I guess based on the specs, it looks like they had an unfair power advantage, uh, maybe, or just unfair aerodynamic advantage. I don't see how that's true. I mean, it did have a real a rear spoiler, but it wasn't extreme by any means. Uh, they were looking for downforce, but they wanted to keep that straight line speed and reduce a lot of that drag. But it looks like some of the rivals had some complaints, which honestly, I just I don't understand how you can complain. I mean, seeing the the uh, Camaro, I might have said Corvette earlier, Camaro um, on the grid. It's like twice the size of every other car. It, it looks enormous. So yeah, no, it, I, I don't. I would have never thought that they would do as well as they as they did. Now, they did finish 39th of 62 cars, but the news is they did a lap time of 3:47.976, which was nearly four second faster than the fastest GTE car, which is a Ferrari 488 GTE Evo. Um, that was very surprising. Uh, since they set a faster lap or a really fast lap in qualifying, um, they beat every GT car in the GT class, and so they had to play. They had to bump up the Camaro uh, to sit between the GTE cars and the LMP2 cars. Something they weren't really planning for. Uh, the expectation, I think, was that they would just sit in the GT class and really wouldn't move up to start beating the Ferraris, the Ferrari GTE cars, um, and being right under the LMP2 cars, uh, which is wild to think of, you know, that a NASCAR Cup car is doing that nowadays. You would have never expected that, even 10 years ago. So that is wild. And they actually stayed ahead of the GTE field for hours. It, was, it wasn't like a fluke. It wasn't just qualifying times. They were actually faster. But they had some transmission trouble uh, that required them to go in for repairs. And at that point, they lost the lead. Uh, but for a good portion of the race, it seemed like as long as everything went according to plan, which it never does, um, they would actually exceed expectations by a lot and they actually did i mean all things considered with the first entry just a slightly modified cup car jumping into Le Mans and finishing 39th out of 62 cars and doing faster than uh, going faster than ferrari gtes i would definitely call that a success i don't know that they would build on it at all i'm surprised they chose the camaro really i would think i think they're not making them anymore as of, I don't know which year it is, but I remember they announced they're going to stop making the Camaro. So it isn't that they're trying to sell more of them, or maybe they're trying to sell the ones that are left. Um, 
but maybe they build it on another platform going forward or find a way to enter within the right class. I imagine they want to rotate the Garage 56 entry and not always have it be the same car, but who knows? Um, I really hope it isn't just a one-off. It'd be nice to see the Evolution NASCAR through these different tracks, right? Maybe put one on the Nürburgring. That might be extreme, but who knows? We're heading in that direction in terms of technology. Now it's not just left turns. Now there are right turns included in NASCAR, and that is on the regular schedules. So we can see some changes happening. I wonder what NASCAR is going to look like in 10 years. I would have never guessed it'd be here 10 years ago. I was I always thought it would be just, you know, the the left turn, the oval racing for NASCAR, even though they dabble in other things or through history. It just never seemed like they were heading in that direction. Uh, but then once they did in full force recently, it's I think they're really, really picking up steam on the evolution of what they're racing uh, is going to look like. And I'm very interested. I think they're getting a lot more fans by doing this, I mean, F1 has gone crazy with Netflix Drive to Survive and sort of the marketing push that they've done. Um, so maybe NASCAR is trying to do a very similar push um, with going overseas and showing off what these cars can do. But I thought that was pretty cool. Um, I'm excited to see what's to come. Uh, but other news from Le Mans, uh, 50 years ago, Ferrari actually left to focus on their F1 program. This was back in the 70s. But for reasons completely unrelated to currently uh, current racer and driver Leclerc, Ferrari is back like they never left. So they re-enter Le Mans this year after a 50-year absence. And what do they do? They win the 24-hour of Le Mans. That's it's insane. Um, it seems on the surface, you can easily say, well, I, they're a huge brand. They have extreme racing pedigree. They have limitless pockets. Um, but even then you have to do a lot of things right to dethrone a consistent winner. Toyota has dominated in the last, you know, five or six or even more years than that, I think, but around there, um, and so they're coming in with a new car, um, a new formula after not being part of the race for 50 years. You're going to have to hire the right personnel that knows what they're doing. You're going to have to hire the right engineers that know what they're doing for Le Mans. I mean, this team spent years developing cars specifically for this track for this one event a year. So Le Mans has to uh, Ferrari has to figure out how to do that. Now, uh, Le Mans actually helped build Ferrari's reputation, right? They, they, this is where they sort of built their reputation as race cars, where they started selling their cars, and really the marketing began for Ferrari, really. So their relationship with Le Mans is pretty significant. They have nine wins uh, between its first in 1949 and its last in 1964, and it was in 1973 that he decided to focus on Formula One instead. So they did, they had a bit of a dry spell from 64 to 73. Still competitive, just didn't win. And they returned because of how classing has evolved. Before, Le Mans was really just a, uh, sort of unlimited in what you could run. I mean, there were rules, but it would it was a lot more mixed than it is now. Currently, it falls into two categories of closed cop cockpit racing prototypes 
And there are two sets of guidelines. There's hypercar and LMP2. Um, and then the cars are performance balanced uh, to level the playing field. And Ferrari chose hypercar. When the hypercar class started coming around, they're like, okay, we can do this. We can, uh, we can build a hypercar and be competitive. And since 2018, as I stated, Toyota had dominated, dominated winning five in a row. You could argue that there wasn't a lot of competition out there, but there was some, um, even some low-budget teams, even though it was some low-budget teams, but Toyota was winning. They were doing the right things um, to win, and they were the favorite coming into this Le Mans. Of, of course, they have won five years in a row. And uh, Ferrari's 499P... Um, started changing minds during qualifying when their times were very, very quick. It's like, okay, they've they've got a shot. No one is at this point certain that they're going to win or dethrone Toyota, but now they're paying a little more attention. And then the race starts, and one of the two Toyotas is taken out by an accident, and a mid-race glitch dropped one of the Ferraris from the lead lap. So now we've got one Toyota, and one Ferrari in contention uh, for the victory at Le Mans. And then the final six hours, the number eight Toyota and the number 51 Ferrari swapped leads repeatedly. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth in those last six hours. Um, it's hard. I think it's hard to watch the full 24 hours, especially if you're not there. But you can keep up with updates nowadays pretty easily. It's pretty nice. So lead changes, anything Anything that happens on the track, you're really getting reported on. Um, you could probably even just keep up with it on Twitter. You don't really need a specific news outlet, but it's kind of nice. And uh, with under two hours to go, uh, the Toyota driver lost control due to issues with brake balance and went into a barrier, and the gap with Ferrari, with Ferrari grew to over a minute. Prior to losing control... The number eight, this is Toyota's claim, the number eight made impact with the squirrel. So it's possible that Toyota can blame a rodent for their second place finish. And this is from Toyota. The team actually said that they believe they hit a squirrel out on the track that damaged their arrow. They didn't say, they stopped short of saying that this is what caused the loss of control. Um, cause what they actually blamed that on was the brake balance on the car. Uh, I couldn't really find anything more than that, but it is interesting that they're not saying they're now saying that a squirrel was involved as well. But I mean, they did finish second. That is, that's extremely good, but Ferrari was able to pull the rug right out from under them and victory was in sight, but with 20 minutes left, the Ferrari 499P required a literal reboot. They had to reboot the car during a pit stop to get it to start running again. I guess when they got in for the pit stop, turned off the car, they're trying to turn it back on, and there were maybe the blue screen of death. I don't know if they run Windows. I don't know what they're running. But something happened that caused the system to freeze, and they had to reset it and then get the car on its way. Um, suffice to say that they were able to do that, and they won Limon. So they're back on top again. I'm sure they will have no more trouble selling cars. Those poor, poor uh, Ferrari folks over there uh, needed to get back into Le Mans to sell cars. No, they're, man, Ferrari's like, 
on top of the world when it comes to motorsport. They dominate in everything they're in. It's it's incredible. Um, I mean, to be absent of something, think about think about like like your job right now. Say you took a year and a half, two years off your job, not even 50. Right. Just a year, two years off that job. And then those two years are up and you have to go back to the same job. You've done nothing else. You go back to the same job. Would you be able to do it? at the same level as soon as you arrive? I don't know. I don't know that I would. I'd definitely have a warm-up period to kind of figure things out, get my bearings right, right, get my network going again. Because it's also about, you know, the team that you build. You know, like I mentioned earlier, the engineers, the the whole personnel, everyone that knows Lamont, you know, that it's working on your behalf. That That's all part of it. And so to come back after 50 years and then just straight up win and, you know, Toyota knows what they're doing. Clearly, it's not like there's just scrubs on the field. There was a lot of good teams on the field. Uh, Cadillac had a program um, out on the field. Right. So there was a lot of reasons to be happy with just like a top 10 finish. Right. That would have been considered a success. I'm sure at Ferrari. That would be blasphemy to say that that would be okay. They were gunning for number one from the beginning, knowing Ferrari. But um, that's pretty cool. It's a pretty impressive feat for them to be able to do that. Now, moving on to our next headline. Can racing on Sunday help sell more new Integras on Monday? The 2024 Acura Integra Type S will race in this year's Pikes Peak Hill Climb pretty interesting i think it's cool that they're doing this uh acura has been participating in this uh event for the past 12 years and this is the 13th year they will be running there um and they've decided to bring the integra type s um which i think is a great move on their part um it's you know it has the saying goes right race on sunday sell on monday uh that's exactly what they're doing here they're trying to give the Integra Type S a little better reputation. I think there wasn't a lot of excitement when the car dropped, the base Integra or the Type S uh, dropping. So I think this is a good way of them sort of proving out the platform and generating a little more buzz. The Integra Type S will compete in the exhibition division, uh, and that really, there isn't too much changes. When you look at the car, a picture of the car, it actually looks like a fairly tame street car. Um, so they didn't do too much. So they're they're out to prove that the car that they're selling, this is my assumption, but they're out to prove that the car that they're selling with just some basic modifications is good enough to be a performance um, driver, uh, according to HPD, who is actually building the program. And they put a, a race back hood, some front splitters, a swan neck rear wing. Um, it has a Borla exhaust, some 19-inch Titan wheels with Yokohama Advan A005s. And it will be driven by Lonnie Unser. And as I stated, this is built by, built by Honda Performance Development. Um, so it is a uh, racing program that's building this car. 
but there wasn't too much that they did to it uh, in order to run Pikes Peak. So I'm very interested in the times that they do. But with this being uh, Integra- Acura's 13th year going to Pikes Peak, they weren't going to limit themselves just to the Type S. They are actually bringing a base model Integra as well. The suspension has been upgraded with Bilstein dampers and Ibox springs, which is kind of like step one of suspension modifications before you move on to like coilovers, you know, when you start modding your car. So again, they're trying to prove out that these platforms are good enough to perform under extreme circumstances with very basic upgrades. They've got the Borla exhaust on this one as well. Uh, they did put a Cusco Racing limited slip differential because I think the base model does not come with an LSD. 18 HRE wheels, also with the Yokohama Advan A005s. And this one is actually built by Honda of America Racing Team, or HART for short. This will be driven by Paul Hubers, who is an Acura engineer. And then we have two more cars. The TLX Type S is also running, again with some basic aero upgrades. The Turbo 3 liter V6 has an upgraded has been upgraded with a larger turbo. The 10-speed 10-speed automatic transmission has been retuned for the climb, and the suspension has been lowered by one inch. 600 pounds have, has also been removed from the car, running on 19-inch. HRE wheels and also the same Yokohama Advance as the others. This car is also built by Hart and driven by Jordan Guitar, another Acura engineer. I think uh, the next car and last car on the list is also driven by an engineer. This one from Honda, James Robinson. I think the easiest way to get a seat at Pike's Peak is to become an engineer. Uh, I think if they would have told me that in high school, I might have tried a little harder in college in terms of becoming an engineer because this sounds cool. I mean, I, I think it's awesome that I mean, you can assume that a lot of automotive engineers have track driving experience and are driving at a competitive level. So it isn't like it's not merited. I'm not saying that at all, but I am. But it is the people involved on building these cars that get to drive them, you know, according to Acura and Honda, which I thought was pretty, pretty cool. Now, the last car is named the Yamabiko, and Yamabiko is a mythical mountain god in Japanese folklore. But for Pike's Peak, it is a 2022 NSX Type S. And it has been set up with custom carbon fiber bodywork that's designed to maintain downforce and reduce drag. And that also has a custom rear wing that actively adjusts to reduce drag or to use it as an air brake. Um, so this is part of an active aero test that the heart team, a heart skunk, skunk, works, skunk works team uh, has put together. I, didn't, I hadn't even heard of this skunk works team until uh, I read about this NSX. So it's a Skunk Works team for Hart called Crazy New, which is like a little bit on the nose, I think. It's like it's like the crazy, you know, it's like they were they were they had a meeting, they're like, "Okay, we need a division to work on new aero technology. What should we call it?" Uh, well, we're going to make somebody's like, "We're going to make like Crazy New parts. We should call it Crazy New." Okay, we'll stick with that. Crazy new. I, 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 who would have thought? But I think it's pretty cool that they're working on 
um, Active Arrow and how will that be? How that will be the future? I think there's a lot of racing bodies currently that probably aren't allowing Active Arrow. I think for the most part, I've seen that Active Arrow is not allowed in a lot of uh, rule books that I've seen. Um, but I mean, I think eventually it'll be incorporated in some way or another. So it's cool that this is being invested in at that level. Cause then eventually it'll trickle down to us and you know, that's how it works. They make it in, uh, they develop it for race cars and all of a sudden it makes it into the mainstream cars and then it's available in the aftermarket. Once those designs are released and then they're a little cheaper to pick up and we pick them up and put them on our cars but that's pretty cool. You know, we've got four Acuras running at Pikes Peak um, in all different types of divisions, Exhibition, uh, Time Attack Division 1, um, and it's – I'm still not going to buy one in Integra. It's not even on the list of cars I would want to own. But in terms of appealing to the right demographic – I think this is a great move by Acura. And so the, since they're going to go there anyway, might as well. And also, Pikes Peak is sponsored or presented by Gran Turismo. So you're getting a lot of young folks to put eyes on that Acura Integra. Will it ever get to the level of the old Integra, the 90s Integra that we all loved? Probably not. There's a lot of better options at that price point currently. Um, so that's probably not going to happen, but they might carve out a little chunk of the market for themselves through the investment of motorsport. I'm curious to see what the times are. I think what we're going to have to compare it to is going to be the civic type R. Um, and we know that the Integra type S has five more horsepower. I don't know if that'll be too, uh, too big of a difference at Pikes Peak? I highly doubt it. it. It probably won't change much, but we'll see if it actually goes faster or, or even gets close in terms of his action. Now, our final headline looks like we need a new Airbud movie where he gets someone out of a DUI. This Airbud was a little less successful. So, a Colorado driver trades places with a dog in an attempt. To, to avoid being arrested for a DUI. I don't know in what world he thought this was going to work, but a guy in Springfield, Colorado, was pulled over for speeding late at night, as you would if you're speeding. He freaked out when he got pulled over, and the best plan he could come up with is switching places with his dog. He literally put... He put his dog in the driver's seat, jumped into the passenger seat. That was that was what he thought at the time the best idea he could come up with. The cop would believe that the dog was driving and not him. Yeah, solid plan, dude. Solid plan. The man uh, then told the cop that he was not behind the wheel, and the officer asked him how much he had to drink immediately. And he booked it for about 20 yards. At that point, he was caught. This is ridiculous. He was going 52 miles per hour in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. I don't know how things go in Colorado, and sure, this guy was drunk, 
clearly out of his mind. But 52 in the 30 late at night, yeah, you're going fast, but that is not worth a police chase over. Um, I, at that point, I'm giving up. I mean, they've got me, right? I'm not going to run. They've got me. I'm drunk as hell. I've put my car, my dog in the driver's seat. There's no way out of this. But clearly he wasn't of sound mind at the point at that moment. And the police said that the dog was given to an acquaintance of the driver. So don't worry. The dog made it out OK. And uh, was taken care of while the, his owner was in jail. The police officer also said that the dog does not face any charges and was let go with a warning. This is insane. I mean, I guess the the Springfield, Colorado police thought it was funny enough to put this on Facebook and let everyone know um, how dumb this driver is. And he went from, I mean, I don't know if putting your dog on the driver's seat comes with any charges, but he got a DUI. I'm sure he got like evading police or trying to run for police, uh, for that 20 yard dash he did. Uh, and then, you know, trying to lie about who was driving the car, your dog. That's so stupid. That's so stupid. And the cop did say that he could see, um, the driver like contorting inside the car before getting out, jumping out on the passenger side. So the cop even caught him on the move. It wasn't that he opened or lowered the window to talk to him. I mean, he was he was out of the car at that point, which is, I mean, it's incredibly dumb. Don't drink and drive, but then also don't just dig yourself into a deeper hole once you've been caught. At that point, just face the consequences. But really, I, I don't think... Ed, Anybody should be this drunk ever, like at any point. Like, I, I, it's fun, of course, it's fun. But if you're so drunk that you think a, putting a dog in the driver's seat is a good, good enough way to get out of getting a DUI, yeah, you need some help. But anyway, let's move into our next segment. The people have spoken. So now we are back with your polls from Instagram for the week. And the first one I threw up was dealing with oil leaks. When you own old cars, like many of us do, we have to learn how to deal with leaks. It's a meme that plagues every make and model. I think some more than others. I think BMW has uh, plays a big role in that meme. But, I mean, it's most old cars are all talked about in terms of the leaks that they develop as they get older. And there are a few ways to deal with these leaks. Uh, including opting to not deal with them at all, which a lot of people do, as uh, it is, what is it, evidenced or dis—I don't know—proved uh, by viewing any major parking lot, like a Lowe's. That's not a good example. Go to just go to a Target parking lot or a Walmart par parking lot, and you'll see. Um, oil stains all across that parking lot. So it is a problem that gets neglected a lot. So I got curious, you know, how people deal with them, because there is a few ways that I've seen. The vote that the one that got the lowest vote in terms of how to deal with leak was with leaks. It's parking on the street. Got 10 percent 
of the vote. I really thought this would be the most popular vote, um, especially out here where I think most of the followers are. Um, oh, yeah, I was expecting, like, if it's on the street, you sort of care a little less or maybe you care a little more. I do live in California, but it only got 10% of the vote, which was surprising but also really cool. We're keeping our streets clean, just not our Walmart and Target parking lots, apparently. The second one with the 18% of the vote is I don't deal with it at all. That was an option. This is the literally the most appealing of the options if I never had to do anything uh, to deal with these things. Like they just dealt with themselves. But it's not. So it's the one that bugs me the most also. It is literally both. I would love to never have to deal with the leak again. But I've come to terms with the fact that I will have to deal with them the rest of my life because of the hobby that I've chosen and because I like, like old German cars. Of course, I'm going to have to deal with leaks in one way or another. And there are a variety of ways. Now, the second most popular vote with 24% was lots of cardboard. Shout out to Randy, man. Uh, he, <laughs> the prelude was one that frequently got sheets of cardboard, um, back in the day. And I've used this on multiple occasions, mostly so I can finish watching like Netflix shows I'm binging that weekend, or sometimes you just really don't want to work. I'm kind of going through that right now. I have a lot to do, but I just don't want, I think your day job kind of beats it out of you. So I don't really want to go into the garage and wrench. I've been sort of like dragging myself along in terms of that. Even just telling myself, okay, just do like one small thing and get in there. I've been having a hard time, but sometimes that happens. So putting down a sheet of cardboard, you know, might be the best way to uh, delay that so you don't have to work on it immediately. Just throw away that cardboard right before you start working on it again. The problem with that, though, is that initially it starts like, a, I'm going to put cardboard here and fix it next weekend. It's like, but now you've learned that you can get away with some time. So one weekend can turn into two weekends without much consequence. It's not like these cars are driven every day. So one weekend turns into two, which turns into three. It's a dangerous, slippery slope, that cardboard. So I try not to use it a lot. Now, the most popular option that you guys chose with 48% of the vote makes me extremely proud of the automotive community. I'm really really proud of y'all. I'm proud of myself too because this is one that I would have that I would have chosen and have practiced replacing all components. This means that our cars will outlive us on the road. We are keeping the future of these old ship boxes intact making sure that we keep them alive and keep more of them on the road by fixing these stupid leaks so the engines can stay lubricated while we beat on them. That is awesome. 48% of the vote. I thought that was cool. Replacing all components, although expensive and annoying, uh, it's, I would say, 90% of the time, completely arbitrarily, a 90% of the time, it would fix everything right or it's the best way to go right it will ensure you the best possible uh fix i've done sort of the piecemeal fix fix one thing here fix one thing one thing there uh, and it's just 
you always end up having to switch everything anyway. So sort of while you're in there, you might as well, uh, you know, just replace all of the components. Don't just look for one. Just do them all, right? It's time. The other ones are probably going to start leaking too. Now, there are things I won't do that with, like coil packs, unless they're extremely cheap, which they never are, at least for BMWs, they never are. Uh, but for the most part, you know, anything fairly relatively inexpensive, everything is going to be replaced. Now, the next one takes us, a, the next poll takes us a little bit away from cars. You know, I know it's not car related, but you saw an IG. My E36 went to Mars, so it's relevant. You saw I I challenged Elon. Um, that was I don't know what I was thinking with that picture. Uh, if you go look at it, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. I just looked at it and it made me laugh, so I wanted to post it. But I look at it and it's just so ridiculous. It makes no sense. I don't know what drove me to do it, but I did and I, and I laughed. So I decided to post it. And. When I was learning about the solar system in elementary school, Pluto was a full-on planet. And then out of nowhere, it gets downgraded to a dwarf planet. And mo with most people saying at the time that it is no longer a planet. And the science states that Pluto hasn't cleaned up its area, therefore it's not a planet. Like, scientifically, based on the rules, it's not. I've still been a little stubborn about that. Based on what I learned and then like pulling a 360 on me in while I was in high school, I think. Um, so I challenge it from time to time and I'm only like halfway joking. But I mean, I, I trust the science. I'm, it's, it's a dwarf planet. Fine. But I wanted to see if everyone else did. So then I put up a stupid poll that's, that gave three options. What is Pluto? The second option, Pluto is a planet and nothing can change my mind. And the third option, no, Pluto is a dog. Um, and this was the breakdown. What is Pluto got 13% of the vote, which is a good sign. This is what I was hoping for, right? Very low percentage on what is Pluto. It's mostly going to capture like the trolls, right? The people that want the funny answer. Um, hopefully not people that don't know what Pluto is. Um, and it was a low percentage, so that's good. Most of you went to school, or most of you at least remember what we were taught in elementary school, uh, so that's good. I was very proud to see that. The second option with 42% of the vote was Pluto is a planet and nothing can change my mind. This is where I fell into, so a good portion of you are millennials and feel like you were scammed um, about what we were taught about Pluto. Um but the science is sound, so it is what it is. But 42% of you are in my camp in terms of holding on to that nostalgia of Pluto being a planet. And the last one, with 45% of the vote, Pluto is a dog. So either there's a lot of Disney fans out there or we need to read more. So this sort of, I realized after the fact that this countered the what is Pluto uh, a little bit in that, you know, if you got your education from Disney then you would know what Pluto actually is. So 45% of you thought Pluto is a dog, which he is a dog. I think I think the thing is that both are true here. Pluto is a dog and Pluto is, a, well, all three things are true. Pluto is a dog. Pluto is a planet. Pluto is a dwarf planet. And it is actually a dwarf planet. So the three rules are actually that the uh, celestial body has to orbit around the sun it has to have 
sufficient mass to assume hydrostatic equilibrium. All that means is that it's nearly round. That's all those words mean, that it's nearly round, and that it has cleared the neighborhood around its orbit. This is where it failed. It did not clear the neighborhood around its orbit. There's a lot of junk around Pluto, and therefore... It is not a full-on planet. It is a dwarf planet. Now, let's get back into cars. The last poll, the check engine light fueled anxiety. This week's meme dropped, including included a 420 code on an ODB reader, and it got me wondering what everyone does when the check engine, line comes, check engine light comes up. Newer cars tell you to go straight to an authorized repair center, but we know better than to do that, right? A lot of our... Screens on our cars, when the check engine light pops up, it says, you know, uh, limit your speeds or it will go into limp mode and then tell you to go to the dealer. But you should avoid that as much as possible, I think. So I went out to find what you would say and I threw up a poll that gave four options or actually, yeah, four options. Go to AutoZone, O'Reilly's, etc. right, or the like. Go to the dealer, cry, or plug in my reader. Now, I was already aware that a lot of you guys are DIY people. Um, I can tell by some of the pages that I follow as well. So I sort of knew or thought I knew where this would go. And here is the breakdown. In terms of going to AutoZone, this one got the least amount of votes with 7%. And this is surprising because they do do it for free. So I would expect a bigger uh, set of sort of the mainstream population or mainstream car owner to want to use that option. Uh, but maybe I just don't have a lot of those people uh, on Instagram. Uh, but yeah, it only got 7% of the vote. Now, I wouldn't trust their recommendations. So I see why I would not want to go there. Um, once I actually went to get a new battery, this was back when I owned the Rio. I went to AutoZone to buy a new battery. My battery was dead, but I could jump the car and drive it. So what I did is I jumped the car. I drove it to AutoZone. I knew I wasn't going to be able to turn it on again, but I was going to get a new battery, swap it and be on my way. I mean, I have to turn in the core anyway. So I buy the battery and the AutoZone guy is like all gun ho about replacing the battery because we had talked and I told him I was going to replace it in the parking lot. And so he's like, oh, I'll do it for you. I'll take care of that for you. And I'm like, all right, well, I mean, if I, that's one last thing I have to do, yeah, go for it. Um, I'm not going to stop you. But then he uh, messed up my bracket. And I was like, oh, God. I should have learned my lesson. He stripped the bolt on that bracket uh, as something super simple, and I had I had a lot of situations like that. I did go. I I went to Jiffy Lube at one point in my life. Got bitten there. Never did that again. Um, I marked a filter uh, when I was doing my oil changes at the Kia Kia dealership, and noticed that the same filter came back once stop doing that that was a major factor in me starting to take uh working on my own cars very seriously so i'd avoid it going to autozone got seven percent but the next one um which is a little more obvious going to the dealer got 14 percent 
Um, this is the option I dread the most. I think I've always dreaded it. The only reason I've gone to dealers is when I owned the Rio, I had it was under warranty. So it was easier to warranty repairs if you kept up with their services, right? Then there's proof that you have done all your services on time. They've got it on file, so they can't challenge you if something goes wrong with the car. Nothing ever went wrong with the Rio until it was in like 119,000 miles, so it exceeded the warranty. But it is still very surprising um, that it got 15 a higher percent than the O'Reilly than O'Reilly's because I figured everyone dreaded going to the dealer. I mean, it's such a hassle, and there's such long lines too. Um, and in a lot of cases, in terms of getting service, like an oil change isn't a 30 minute, 40 minute affair, right? You have to like drop off your car and pick it up later in the day just because they're processing so many cars at any given time. But 14% of you um, go to the dealer when everything happens. I even lag on like recalls. Like when I get recalls, which is just like free work, it takes me forever to take the cars in. I always do. I always get to the point where I take them and get the recall done. But sometimes I get my car back and I'm like, you know what? They probably just didn't do anything. They probably just checked it off that they did it and they sent the car on their way. Because a lot of times it isn't like a major safety issue. At least I don't think I've ever done any recalls for safety issues. No, I take that back. I think I did I did have one for like a fire hazard in the E92 that I got taken care of. I hope that was done right because I don't want my car to catch fire. But, I mean, I'm not going to do a recall on my own if the labor is free. I guess I took the chance, so I deserve the consequence. But, yeah, now going into our next one, and this is sort of the joke option I included, cry. 29% of the vote was cry. And, honestly, it's probably the one that I relate to the most. I've never shed a tear about a check engine light, but I swear I can hear flying money, right, just going straight out of my bank account as soon as I see the light. I always get anxious. I see the light. I'm like, ah, here we go. And I don't honestly don't ever think it has been anything super significant. I think the 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 only time a check engine light has cost me more than, let's say, a grand. And it was really the only time it got close to it was when I owned a 335i. And I had a bad injector. It had the old injectors. I had two bad injectors and decided to replace them all since they were well behind in terms of the versions that they were on. Um, so I decided to get all new ones. And at the time, it was like $1,100 for all six injectors, which was crazy. I was used to like Hondas where, you know, it's it's super cheap. For 100 bucks, you're getting all four. Um, now I have two extra, I have six, but it was still $1,100. So that was, I think the only time, uh, but I got that car for so cheap that it was, it was worth the thousand bucks. And I ended up selling that car. I owned it for like four or five weeks. Couldn't have been more than that. Um, I fixed it, put new injectors in it, and then I sold it for like a three or four grand profit or so. Um, but it was the one of the few times. Usually it's like a crank position sensor, an O2 sensor. It, it, it's things like that where they aren't that significant or like one ignition coil or it was the spark plugs. 
right, where it's not that extreme. Lucky, knock on wood, it hasn't been super extreme, but that's where it's at. But still, it elicits uh, the same response of like, ah, here we go. I hope it's not the $1,000 one. I hope it's the $50 one. And the last option of what you do immediately after the check engine light comes on is the most logical and probably the one we all do the most, plug in my reader. With 50% of the vote, a significant jump from the other percentages. Uh, most of you out there, like I said, are the DIY people. So congratulations on all the money that you've saved working your ass off in a garage, cursing the world, and losing all your 10-millimeter sockets. You drive uh, the existence of shit boxes on the road, and I thank you for that. But, yeah, that's what I do. I take my reader to the track, which I think it just – I mean, I don't travel with too many spares, uh, but if a check engine light pops on and it's like the motor's acting funny, I won't go, but if it's not – acting funny i'm just gonna go for it but yeah i guess you always want to know you know if it's something major if it's a misfire or something's going on that you shouldn't drive on it's better to know so i take it with me so i immediately plug it in and at least i give me some peace of mind but that is the people have spoken and we are gonna end this week with a moment in history the ocean to ocean endurance race and this is I think the first cross-country endurance race. And last week we covered the first cross-country trip in America. This week it's the first cross-country endurance race across America. The Ocean to Ocean Automobile Endurance Race. And it's a transcontinental endurance race that was held in 1909. That's six years after Horatio's drive, which is what I talked about last week. So it took him 60-odd days to get across the country, um, how much did we advance in six years that now in 1909 we're having cross-country races? And the race ran from New York to Seattle. So that's, I mean, that's as, it's pretty significantly cross-country. Um, you're staying sort of in the north a little bit, um, but, but it's definitely a wild cross-country trip, especially for 1909. And the race was an idea by the Alaska-Yukon-Pacific expo they wanted to raise interest in the world fair that they held and this is the world fair in seattle so the idea was to drum up interest through this crazy new technology called cars and traveling across the country with them which is a crazy feat i mean just six years from considering it impossible um we're now traveling across the country which i think is it's still something that's a little daredevilish. And Henry Ford was involved, and he had his own selfish reasons. He thought that this race would give Americans an opportunity to appreciate the vast possibilities of the motor car. I think this was the first race on Sunday, although this is a long, much longer endurance race. Race on Sunday, sell on like the fourth Monday from today. Um but that's sort of what was Henry Ford's motivation because he did have cars running in the race. And it was co-sponsored by the Automobile Club of America, the Seattle Automobile Club, and, of course, the Alaska Yukon Pacific Expo. And Henry Ford was along for the ride. And there was prize money and a trophy that were donated by Robert Guggenheim, who was actually arrested 
for blowing past the speed limit on this race. So the major donor of the race was one of the guys that got arrested. And it wasn't even ticketed. It was arrested for exceeding the speed limit on the race. And it's crazy to me that there were already speed limits at the time that were punishable by arrest in 1909. I guess it was pretty immediate. As soon as the cars existed, the speed limits went up. Now, the first place prize was $2,000, which is about $66,000 in today's money. And the second prize was $1,500, which is $50,000 in today's money. So it was good money for the time. Um, So they, you know, going across round trip, I would say even at the time, this is a yearly salary potentially. So you could... These cars, I mean, getting these cars across country was probably taking a chunk of that, but you could probably make your whole year by winning this race. And the route was actually carved out by a Thomas Flyer, which was a vehicle at the time, and it took two months for the car to establish a good enough route because of how horrible the road conditions were at the time. So they were so bad that he had to keep circling back and coming up with a new route and marking marking that route and it would take two months for them to figure out what the route would be. Um, And once they finally had it, they were ready to get started. Now, the race was broken up into two sections. East of the Mississippi River, the race was an endurance run completely. They could only run during the day and had to stay within the speed limit. West of the Mississippi, there were no limits on either speed or when to drive because the roads were so bad. It was like if we put these limits that they that they can only drive during the day or only drive during uh, a certain speed, they will never get there. That was what they were saying by these rules. So west of the Mississippi, they had no limits. They could go as fast as they wanted, drive as much as they wanted during the day and night uh, and to get there as fast as possible. Now, there were rules against uh engine swapping the car or doing any significant modifications everything was pretty much left to repair but the powertrain had to hold up hold up on the journey at the beginning of the race commentators noticed that henry ford's model t's seemed like quote pygmies compared to the other cars on the field um the advantage was clear to the model t's because they stripped them down to nothing. Ford had the power-to-weight ratio in mind very, very early on, including with the Model Ts. So once the race started, it was very obvious that they were moving faster than the rest of the field. And they also had the advantage that they had dealers across the country already that were prepared to fix any issues the Model Ts had on the way. They had like the complete infrastructure set up to have a successful race so ford was the clear favorite here they were the the number one competition to beat now their strongest competitor was a more powerful shamit which doesn't exist anymore um but they only had dealerships in new york so once they left new york they were on their own it was up to them to fix uh the cars but this is what let the model t's run in sort of their stripped-down configuration because they could be smaller, lighter, have uh, less strong parts, and then could stop for repairs more often, whereas these bigger cars had to be a little stronger and be able to withstand the torture because there wasn't anywhere else to fix these cars. At least there would be shops and such, 
that they probably set up, but it wasn't as significant as Ford's advantage. Now, the drivers would run out of gas. They dealt with fires. They got lost. Sometimes they were axle deep in mud and even quicksand um, was something that they had to deal with on the race. I mean, it wasn't like paved roads at the time. It's 1909. They're off-roading essentially the whole way across America. It's wild that they would do this in in Model Ts and if you see them, which just looks like horse carriages, motorized horse carriages and like no suspension. It's hard to comprehend with, you know, just everything we have now and all the cars that we've driven our entire lives have been so much more technologically advanced than these cars, but they were already taking them across country. It's crazy. Now, for Ford ended up taking the win after a total of 23 days on the road. And that's a third of the time that it took Horatio just six years prior. I mean, we're, it's, it's, it's a huge jump in terms of what, can, what we can achieve. And it's crazy to think that we're still breaking these cross-country records. I think now down, we're, we're now down to 32 hours from these 23 days. But it's... Automotive technology has moved so, so quickly, so quickly, even taking into account that it's been more than 100 years since automobiles have existed. It's still incredible um, how we keep moving forward with cars, and I, I'm, I'm thankful. I love cars. Now, the top speeds for these cars, 40 miles per hour, and that's top speeds. They're not... They're not doing 40 miles per hour all the time, but imagine having to drive across country limited to 40 miles per hour. That's like that's like driving across country in traffic the whole way. Yeah, it's not stop and go traffic, but 40 miles per hour does not feel fast on the freeway. It feels like you're crawling. But 40 miles per hour was the max. And Henry Ford immediately, as soon as Ford had crossed the finish line as the victor, started marketing and selling more Model Ts than he could deal with. And he became a millionaire as a result of the Model Ts. And this was one probably motivation behind wanting to buy those cars. But it was all over the newspapers at the time in terms of what people thought of these Fords as they saw them flying by at blistering speeds of 40 miles per hour down dirt roads as they are using a scythe to cut the grass on their farms. You know, they're, it's, uh, they're like, oh, I've never seen anything like that before. It's, I mean, I would, I would equate it to like us probably seeing a Koenigsegg fly by, or not even that, an F1 car flying by like outside our window um, in, in our, on our blocks. Like, this is such a foreign thing at the time, right? Carriages are pulled by uh, by horse. The Model T was still in its early years. You know, it's just become available to the regular guy. It has News hasn't really spread to the whole country yet. I mean, we're still establishing that. And this is one of the ways that they made the whole country aware of what Ford was doing. But five months later... There was some drama. It turned out that the Ford car had to be disqualified because it took five months to discover that they had swapped the motor during the race, which was against the rules. They weren't supposed to modify the powertrain. It took five months. If that happened today, we would know in five minutes, if not less, five seconds. 
somebody would have gotten it on their phone and posted it on Twitter, Instagram, any of the social media, and we will all be aware about it, and I would have posted about it by now, clearly. That's wild that it took five months for this to happen. And honestly, now, if it took five months to find something out, unless it was like criminal, I don't think there would be anything actionable. Um, Although this is pretty extreme in terms of uh, how against the rules it is because they swapped the motor. It's kind of sketch. But I guess they were just doing whatever they could to win and they had the infrastructure to do it. But they were caught and they were disqualified and the second place uh, uh, finisher got moved to first, which was the Shamit car. Um, They were awarded the win, but honestly, I think with Ford getting the... um, sort of the first announcement in terms of the victor, five months later, if you're changing that, I don't think anyone's listening. I don't think it's like today either. I mean, this is the first race, so I don't imagine there was a lot of buzz around this, uh, although some. But if you get news about it five months later, it's probably going to be like on the last page of the newspaper, and it is on a newspaper, right? You're not... At this time, you're not getting the information on TV. You might be getting it on the radio. Uh, But, I mean, I don't even think it would necessarily be covered. It would be covered by, like, outlets like this podcast, right, where it's not a world reach like a CNN. It's more like a niche-level news for people that are obsessed with cars. uh, What is it? Unnaturally obsessed with cars. But that's crazy. Uh, Shamit went under they went out of business they really make any noise um i'd say i would bet that 95 percent of you have never heard the term shaman because i hadn't um not to say that i know what 90 for 95 percent of you know which is exactly what that's saying so i'm walking that one back but it just seems like something that wouldn't be known by a lot of people. I know I didn't know it. And so they are the actual winner of the ocean to ocean endurance race. But Ford is the one who really benefited. Even if they weren't the winner five months later, they really benefited from this race. Now in 2009, there was a reenactment. I would never do this. So in 2009, they took 55 model T's and reenacted the race. They took the same route that they would take. Now, it's doing much better, right? There are paved roads now, so they're not having to deal with quicksand in 2009, but they were limited to 40 miles per hour. Um, and again, I mean, these are Model Ts, so they're they're motorized horse carriages. They're not anything advanced, so really you probably don't even want to go 40 miles per hour on these cars on the roads. Because if you're doing it on a dirt road, you can attribute the movement and the choppiness on the dirt road, even if it's the car uh, that's doing it on a smooth road, you're noticing everything that's wrong with the car. I'm betting it's worse on asphalt. Um, I guess easier to perceive is worse, I will say, because it definitely would be worse on a dirt road. Um, but you can blame a lot of the creeks and stuff on the dirt road and not the car itself. I would be freaking out about the car. 
And so they reenacted it, um, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty cool that 55 Model Ts even exist in the 2000s. Uh, but to take that route, I don't know. I mean, I'd debate going cross-country in the cars I have now, let alone on a Model T. Jeez. I mean, you're not. it's not a non-stop trip, but whoa, that, that'd, be, that'd be hard. That's what I would refer to as a young man's game for sure. Although, I don't know any young Model T owners. Granted, I don't know any Model T owners, but I also don't know any young Model T owners. And that is your moment in history, the ocean-to-ocean -ocean endurance race, and that is also our episode. You can find us at 91octane.com. That is all letters, no numbers. Also, like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. And don't forget to check out some swag at 91octane.com slash shop. And that's all I got. Have a good night.